Hebrews chapter 5. We're going to read uh, the first 10 verses. I wanted to um, practically apologize for not doing Hebrews last week, so I decided to give you guys a gift this uh, week by printing a book for each one of you guys. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Anytime. So let's turn to Hebrews chapter 5. We're going to read verses 1 to 10. Um, I honestly try to see if we can break that passage and do it over two weeks so it doesn't have to be long, but it's just one thought and there's no way you can break it. So it might be, um, I'll try to be, um, we'll try not to be too long today, but uh, it's just a passage that we're running through. We have to blow through it. Let's do it. Uh, Hebrews 5, 1 to 10. Here is what the author of Hebrews says. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God that he might offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man take this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who has said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also said in another place, You are a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Verse 7, who, Jesus, in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from the dead and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all those who obey him. Isn't that such an amazing verse? Um, let's actually say verse 8 and, and 9 together. Let's say it together. It's just so powerful. Although he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all those who obey him. Amen. Called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Amen. Well, um, this is week 21 in the book of Hebrews. And we have arrived to chapter 5. Again, the author of Hebrews is arguing pretty much in the first 10 chapters that the superiority of Christ over the Old Testament elements. We've seen in chapter 1, verse 1 to 3, Jesus is superior to the prophets. Um, Chapter 1, verse 4, all the way till the end of chapter 2, Jesus is superior to the angels. Chapter 3 and 4, Jesus is superior to Moses. And last time we were in Hebrews, the last three verses of chapter 4, we talked about that as uh, as a transitional thought. Jesus is superior to Moses, therefore we say we saw that his followers need to behave different than the followers of Moses. The followers of Moses disobeyed God and did not enter the land of the promise, but the followers of Christ should obey God and strive to enter into God's rest. And in order for God to help us to enter into God's rest, he has provided us such a great high priest that we talked about uh, two weeks ago. Jesus, the Son of God, therefore he said, let us come with boldness, with confidence into the very throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in that time of need. And now that the author of Hebrews bringing the high priest into the picture, he pretty much spent chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and almost the whole chapter 10. That's six chapters after that. You can see this is almost 50% the volume of the book of Hebrews. Arguing how Jesus is superior as our high priest. In a way, Jesus is superior to Aaron, the high priest of the Old Testament. And this is what we're going to try to dig into start this, starting this week. And we're going to be talking about for a long time. In that six chapters, pretty much, there is two major themes that the author of Hebrews is presenting to us. Jesus is superior to Aaron in two ways. Number one, he's a superior high priest. Number two, he has a superior priesthood. Okay? So he's a superior high priest 
and number two he has superior priesthood superior high priest that's pretty much the idea of chapter 5 6 and 7 and then superior priesthood that's pretty much the idea of chapter 8 9 and almost the whole chapter 10 you guys are with me so today, he's arguing with us how Jesus is a superior high priest. And in these 10 verses, the author of Hebrews is kind of making a comparison between Aaron as the high priest of the Old Testament and Jesus as the high priest in the New Testament. And pretty much the idea of these two verses is this, that there are two major qualifications of somebody to be a good high priest. The first major qualification is that this high priest should be able to relate to the people that he is representing. We see that about Aaron in verse 1 to 3. He's saying this, Every high priest is taken from among men, is appointed by men in things pertaining to God that he might offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is subject to weakness because... Of this, he is required to offer sacrifices for himself just as for the people. That's Aaron, right? He was taken among from the men to present the men, and he was offering sacrifices on behalf of the men. And on the Day of Atonement, he will sacrifice for himself and for uh, the people. So number one, the high priest should relate to the people. Number two, the high priest should be appointed by God. This is not somebody who decides, hey, I want to be high priest, and then you go to school, get a master's degree, and become a high priest, okay? This is somebody who is called by God, and that's in verse 4. And no man takes this honor by himself, but he who has called him that is God, just as Aaron himself was anointed and called by God to be a high priest. Amen? Amen. Now, these two qualifications of the high priest that we have seen in Aaron, also we have seen in Christ. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. Number one, Jesus was appointed by God as our high priest. And we see that in verse 5 and 6. Specifically verse 6 when it says, You are a high priest forever on the order of Melchizedek. God appointed Jesus to be our high priest. Amen? But not only Jesus was appointed by God, Jesus also related to the weakness of the people that he has ministered to. And we see a precise example of that in the prayers that he offered in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's verses 7 all the way pretty much to verse 10. How Jesus was just like you and me, even so desperate for God to intervene, that he will cry out to God with such fervent prayers that God will intervene. Amen? So that's pretty much the idea of these two verses. Two qualifications for the high priest. Help me out here. Number one, he has to relate to the weakness of man. We've seen this in Aaron. We see it in Jesus. Number two, he has to be appointed by God. We see this in Aaron and we see this in Jesus as well. Amen? So let's look uh, deeper into these two ten verses. Verse 1, for every high priest taken from men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God that he might offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. Remember how he closed chapter 4? He said that we have such a great high priest who can sympathize with our weakness, Jesus the Son of God, right? And now he's starting chapter 5 by saying, For every high priest is taken from the men for the men that he might offer sacrifices. In other words, the author of Hebrews is saying, To sympathize with the people that that high priest is representing was even existing in the Old Testament. Every high priest, starting with Aaron, was actually a mere human being that was absolutely relating to the people and can sympathize and understand their weakness. And that's why he can be a good high priest before God. Amen? So he's expounding on that idea that he closed chapter 4 with. And then here he says, double... um, Prepositions. He's saying that every high priest is taken from men and is appointed for men. From men and for men. The idea of the double proposition here is to say that the high priest is absolutely, absolutely just like everybody else subject to weakness. He's just a mere human being, happened to be the representative of the rest of his fellow human beings. Amen? And then it says that the main function of the high priest is that he can present two things, gifts and sacrifices. And in in Greek, 
gives here mainly like peace offering. We talked about the offering, right? Spent five weeks talking about the offering or six weeks. There's different kind of offerings. Not every offering in the Old Testament has blood in it. So the idea of gifts here is that peace offering or the cereal offering, the bread offering, and then sacrifices in the Old Testament like the sin offering and like the trespass offering. But the author of Hebrews mixing both of them together here and saying both gifts, both that peace offering and the blood offering are used to atone for sin. Amen? Amen. We don't see that thought clearly in Leviticus, but if you go in Ezekiel and see in the new temple that will be built during the millennium kingdom, every single sacrifice pretty much has the purpose of atoning for sin. Even the, the, the peace offering and the cereal offerings, their purpose is to atone for sins. Amen? Amen? Technicality aside, the idea here is the high priest's job is to represent people before God so he can offer sacrifices to cover their sins before God. Amen? And then he said that this high priest must have compassion or deal gently on those who were ignorant and going astray since he himself also subject to weakness. Amen? Amen. Now, last time we talked from Hebrews 4, I mistakenly told you guys that this verse applies to Christ. I, I'm wrong. This verse was not applied to Christ as was applied to the Old Testament high priest. Amen? So, the Old Testament high priest, the Bible here tells us that he has compassion on those who sin out of ignorance, for he himself subject to weakness. In other words here, the author of Hebrews is reminding us of what he just told us about Jesus in chapter 4, verse 15. That we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but at all points were tempted like us in every possible way, yet without sin. Amen? So he's drawing us back to the description of our high priest. But these two verses, how our high priest looked like versus how the Old Testament high priest looked like, these two verses are not parallel to each other. They're not exactly the same thing like each other. Amen? Jesus, our high priest, in chapter 4, verse 15, he was sympathizing with our weakness because he related to the limitation of the human nature. Right? The high priest of the Old Testament can have compassion because he himself is a sinner. Therefore, he can relate to the sinners that he is representing. You guys are with me? So Jesus was not a sinner. Jesus can relate, sympathize with us because he experienced the limitation of our human nature. But every high priest of the Old Testament can deal gently because he himself is a sinner. He understands what it means to sin out of ignorance because he himself sins out of ignorance. Amen? So the two words that the author of Hebrews used to describe Jesus versus the high priest are different and they are not equal to each other. Jesus can sympathize with us. That means he suffers with us. We talked about this, right? He can feel the pain. He can feel the strength of the temptation that we're going through because he himself was tempted in every possible way. The Old Testament high priest doesn't sympathize with us. He has compassion on us. He deals gently. And the idea here is, Somebody who's pretty much restraining himself because he understands that the situation of the people that he is representing. Like when Micah, my son, makes a mistake and I am about to punish him or spank him or something like that. And then I decide to restrain myself because of what he has done and deal compassionately with him. It is not that I am... Um, going through the exact same temptations that he went through like Jesus did? No, it's more like I'm deciding to restrain my anger because I understand I have done the same mistakes before and therefore I'm trying to restrain myself in the way I deal with him, right? And then it says here that the high priest is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray. The idea here is those who go astray because of ignorance. And we have seen in the sacrifices of the Old Testament that these sacrifices are only for the sin of ignorance. Remember that? 
There is no sacrifice in the Old Testament for those who sin willingly. In the Old Testament, if you mean to sin, if you mean to break the law of God, there is no sacrifice for you. All that is there for you is just to die and be punished by the law. The sacrifices of the Old Testament is only when you don't mean it and it happens. Therefore, there is a sacrifice for you to be forgiven before God. How much compassion? What is the level that the high priest himself can deal gently with those who go astray? The author of Hebrews is expounding on that in verse 3. This is how much. Because... Of this he is required as for the people, so also for himself to offer sacrifices for sins. The author of Hebrews here is telling us about the Day of Atonement. Remember, we talked about this. What happens on the Day of Atonement? The high priest enters into the Holy of Holies. How many times? Twice. He entered twice, one day, a year. That's it. The first time he entered, he entered for his own sins and the sins of his household. And then after he atones for his own sins, he go back and then he enter again to atone for the sins of the nation of Israel. Amen. So this is what the author of Hebrews is telling us that the Old Testament high priest could have compassion on the people, could deal gently with the people who sin out of ignorance because he himself need to atone for himself. On the, himself. on the day of atonement, he need to go in first for his own ignorance, his own weakness, his own sins. And because he knows what it means to sin, he can refrain his anger against those who sin out of ignorance. Right? So that is the Old Testament high priest. He can have compassion on people. He can refrain his wrath or his anger against them when they sin. Because he himself is a sinner. He himself knows what it means to sin and break the law of God out of ignorance. That is what, that's the first character of the Old Testament high priest. The second character is that nobody takes this honor to himself but he who is called by God. In other words, the high priest of the Old Testament doesn't just decide, you know, like when you have your kid, it's like, what do you want to do when you grow up in the Old Testament? No kid can say, oh, I want to become a high priest. It doesn't work this way, right? You have to be appointed by God. In, in Exodus 28, we see how God called Aaron and eventually his descendants that they will be his high priest forever. God chose um, Aaron and eventually chose out of the tribe of Levi, which God has set apart for his service. And out of him and his descendants, the high priest only will come. And then at the very end of verse 4, the very beginning of verse 5, this is what the author of Hebrews say. Just as Aaron was, so was Christ. Right? So just as Aaron was, two areas. What are they? Number one, he can deal gently with the people because he himself knows what it means to sin. Right? He, have, he can have compassion on the people. Number two, Aaron was appointed by God. In these two ways, Jesus was also similar to Aaron. Jesus can have compassion on people. And Jesus was appointed by God to be our high priest. Amen? We've seen this before. In the beginning of chapter 3, when uh, the author of Hebrews start comparing Jesus to Moses... And we've seen that he started with similarity and then he moves to superiority, right? He said they're both with faithful in their households, but Jesus is superior as the son versus the servant, as the builder versus the building, right? And he's doing the exact same thing here. He's saying Jesus and Aaron similar and then eventually he's going to move to the superiority of Christ as our high priest versus the high priest of the Old Testament. And he actually hinted to that in verse 6 when he said that Jesus was appointed high priest not on the order of Aaron, but on the order of Melchizedek. That's how Jesus is superior than Aaron as our high priest. So just as Aaron, so was Christ. Okay, in what way? Number one, Jesus also was appointed by God. And in order for the author of Hebrews to show us this, he quoted two verses from the book of Psalms in the Old Testament. In verse 5, he quoted Psalm 2-7 that says, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, 
you are my son, today I have begotten you. He quoted that verse from Psalm 2, 7 and verse 5. And he said, so also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. A quote from Psalm 2, verse 7. And also said in another place, now this is another quote from Psalm 110, verse 4. And Psalm 110, verse 4 says this, The Lord has sworn and shall not relent. You are a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, the author of Hebrews quoted that part in verse 6 and said, As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Amen? Now, in their own merits, these two verses, God is making decrees in, in each one of these two verses in the Old Testament, right? The first one, Psalm 2 verse 7, God is declaring a decree that Jesus will inherit his name as the Son of God in a functional sense, right? And in Psalm 110 verse 4, God is also making a decree that Jesus will be a high priest forever on the order of Melchizedek. In Psalm 2-7, we actually have seen this before. Remember, the author of Hebrews quoted that verse before in chapter 1, verse 5, right? When he started talking about how Jesus is superior than the angels, he said that Jesus, after he atoned for our sins, sat at the right hand of majesty on high, having become far much better than the angels, inasmuch as he has inherited a more excellent name. That's verse 4. What does verse 5 say? It says, for which of the angels he ever say? You are my son, today I have begotten you, right? We talked about this before. So we've seen, when we talked about this in chapter 1, that the name that Jesus has inherited is the Son of God, which is in a functional sense, not his uh, divinity in a way, but in a functional sense, Jesus has inherited the name Son of God, and he inherited that on the day he was resurrected and ascended to the right hand of God, right? We, we've seen all of that when we studied chapter 1, verse 5. Go back and look at it. Now, moving on to applying Psalm 110, verse 4 to Jesus. Before the author of, well, actually, now before, the author of Hebrews is the only one in the whole Bible and the whole New Testament writers who takes Psalm 110, verse 4 and apply it to Christ. Nobody else did that. Apply that to Christ as our high priest. I think Psalm 110 verse 1 says, not verse 4, verse 1 says, The Lord said to my Lord, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now verse 1 has been applied to Christ in so many other ways in the New Testament. Jesus himself applied that psalm to that part, verse 1, to himself many times when he was arguing with the Pharisees. But verse 4, nobody throughout the New Testament ever applied that to Christ. And it is so interesting, the author of Hebrews used that verse many, many, many times in his argument to prove that Jesus is superior as our high priest. It says here that um, there are at least three direct quotes in 5, 6, 7, 17, and 721, and there are eight allusions to that song in chapter 5, 6, and 7. So there is three quotes, eight allusions, that's 11 times, 11 times. Somehow, the author of Hebrews default back on that one verse to tell us that Jesus is a superior high priest. Amen? You remember, the author of Hebrews seems to be like a preacher. He just picks a verse from the Old Testament and he preaches on it. And we've seen this multiple times before, right? In chapter 2, you guys remember when he talked about... Um, how the son, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you, thought that you think of him. And then he says, you made him lower than the angels and you have crowned him with glory and honor. And he spent the rest of chapter 2, talks about that, right? Preaching from that part of Psalm 2. Saying how Jesus was made lower than the angels for a little bit and now he's exalted far much higher than the angels, right? Chapter 3 and 4 is pretty much a sermon from Psalm 95, right? When he said, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart like the first generation who rejected God in the wilderness and tested me and tried me, right? He spent chapter 3 and 4 pretty much expounding and preaching on this passage from Psalm 95. 
And I tell you, it seems like he spent chapter 5, 6, and 7 for the most part preaching and expounding of Psalm 110 verse 4. I'm going to take one week after we finish these three chapters and just go over how the author of Hebrews used Psalm 110 verse 4 and how he quoted it in his book. Now, if I would have to recommend one message that you listen to, one thing that you need to learn from the book of Hebrews that we're going through, I just want you to listen to this one message because this will blow your mind away how he used Psalm 110 verse 4 to defend and argue the supremacy of Christ. Amen? So make sure this one you don't miss. All right? Anything else, it's okay. You can make it up. But this one is going to blow your mind away. But now, the author of Hebrews quotes and links. Think about this. Links two verses together. He links Psalm 2 verse 7 with Psalm 110 verse 4. Do you guys see that? In verse 5, 5 and 6 he says, So also Christ did not glorify himself to become a high priest, but it is him who called him and told him, Today you are my son, I have begotten you. As he also says in another place. So the author of Hebrews links these two verses together. Psalm 2 verse 7 with Psalm 110 verse 4. And by linking them together, the author of Hebrews is trying to tell us at least two things that he might be thinking about. Number one, he probably telling us that Jesus was declared as our high priest in the same time, in the same incidence that he was declared the son of God. And that's the events of his resurrection and his ascension. You guys are with me? When you link these two together, that means they both took place in the same time. But not only that, the author of Hebrews also might be trying to tell us that that sonship is the foundation of the priesthood of Christ. You guys are with me? That the Christ functional sonship is the very foundation, is the very reason why he can ever be our high priest. Amen? Amen. And we have seen before that the author of Hebrews kind of implies how Because Jesus is the son of God, he can be a high priest. He didn't explicitly might have linked them together like this, but we can definitely see implication at least a couple of times. And in chapter 1, verse 3, he says this, that, you know, God, who's in time past, spoke to our forefathers through the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us, how? In his son. And he goes on and on describing who that son is. And then at the very end, he says, Jesus, the son who has by himself purged us from our sins, right? And purging from sin is a function for the high priest. It's the high priest who atones for the sins of the people. But here we see that the author of Hebrews giving the function of the high priest to Jesus, the son of God. Amen? And also in... um, If we move on, we see that Jesus, in in verse 5, was given the name, the Son of God. And then the author of Hebrews go on and on throughout chapter 1 and 2 about how that Son is superior than the angels. And then he closes chapter 2 by saying this. Or in in chapter 9, we see that Jesus was, I'm sorry, in chapter 2, verse 9, we see that Jesus was made lower than the angels for a little while. The Son of God was made lower than the angels for a little while. That's chapter 2, verse 9. And then in chapter 2, verse 17, we see that the Son, who was made lower than the angel, is now faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. You guys see that? So again, he's linking Son and High Priest together. And then verse chapter 4, verse 14, he point blank linked them together. He said, therefore, since we have a great high priest who have ascended to heaven, who is the high priest? Jesus, the son of God. You guys are with me? So before, many times he links the priesthood of Christ to his sonship to the father. And he did that exact same thing right here. He links on 2-7 with Psalm 110-4 to tell us that sonship is the foundation of the priesthood. Amen? Amen? So Jesus was appointed by God, just like Aaron was also appointed by God in the Old Testament. But there is still another qualification that the high priest has to have, which is being sympathetic to relate, to have compassion on the people that he is representing. 
And in order for the author of Hebrews to show us that Jesus also is the exact same way, he referenced that particularly one incident in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you guys remember that, when Jesus was praying, and the Bible said that his uh, sweat was like drops of blood, this is how fervent he was crying out to God that the cup shall be passed from him. And then Jesus said, but not my will, but yours be done. So the author of Hebrews looked at that incident, and he says, look, look at Jesus He's just like you and me. Have you ever been so desperate for God and you cry out to God so desperately because you're so weak and you're so desperate for God to intervene? Jesus was just like that. He was crying out to God so desperately in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then it says here in verse 7, Who? Jesus. In the days of his flesh. So the author of Hebrews intentionally used the word flesh to imply weakness, right? He didn't say the days of his incarnation or the days of his ministry. He says the days of his flesh to imply that Jesus was weak, just like you and me. Who in the days of his flesh, he has offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears. You follow? You trying to see what he's trying to say here? Jesus prayed hard. Amen. He prayed so hard. I don't know if... Anybody of us can pray that hard, that desperate for God to intervene. That the wording that he uses just show us the desperation that was in Jesus in the garden um, that God will deliver him. And then it says this. He has offered prayer and supplication with vehement cries and tears to him who is able to save him from death. And he was hurt. Now, this is a difficult part. Um, nobody knows exactly, exactly, precisely what exactly in the author of Hebrews mind here. But he's, the author of Hebrews is describing God as the one who can save Jesus from death, right? From the death. And then later on he said that Jesus was heard, i.e. Jesus was saved from death, right? How was Jesus saved from death? Jesus did die, right? He wasn't Saved from death that he didn't experience death. He was saved from death through the resurrection. Because he was raised from the dead on the third day. Again, it's a hard verse. We don't know exactly what he means. But this is just as simple as might be the point that the author of Hebrews is trying to make. Jesus was saved from the death. How? Through his resurrection. Amen? Actually, flip the page with me. And we see something like this in the writing of Paul. Paul, in a way, well, actually, um, okay, let's let's hold on that. Let's continue as we are. Sorry about that. All right. And it says here that um, Jesus was heard. Jesus was saved from the death because of his godly fear. Now, the word that the author of Hebrews used here, godly fear, was mentioned only twice in the New Testament. Right here in Hebrews 5, and the other example is in Hebrews 12, 28. So the author of Hebrews is the only one who used that word in the New Testament, and he used it twice. The second incident is in actually chapter 12, verse 28. He says this, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us, let us have grace by which we might serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. It's the exact same word that the author of Hebrews here used to describe why Jesus was here. Because of his godly fear. The idea here is of reverence. Jesus revered God as a human being throughout his ministry, particularly in the time that he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus has godly fear. He revered God. He wanted to honor and obey God. I just love this wording right here. I'm just going to read it word for word. This is what F.F. Bruce said. He said, At no point can the objection be voiced that because he was the Son of God, it was different or easier for him. Amen? He who would not have resource to miraculous means to relieve his hunger in the wilderness, refused to summon angelic forces to rescue him from his enemies in the garden. He recognized that the 
path to the Father's will and followed it to the end. Hereby he lay his godly fear. Amen. He revered God. He wanted to do his will no matter what. Therefore, Jesus even decided that he will take the cup if that's what the will of God is. And because of how Jesus revered God in a way, the author of Hebrews say he was heard, he was resurrected from the dead because of his godly fear. Amen? We see Paul telling us something among these lines late, uh, earlier in Philippians 2, 8 and 9. Talks about Jesus. Say this, that he being in the appearance of man after his incarnation, he humbled himself because he wanted to be obedient to the point of death, the death of the cross. Look at verse 9. What's the first word? Therefore, God also highly exalted him. Think about that. Therefore. In other words, Paul was telling us something among these lines. Because Jesus loved the Father and because he wanted to obey him so much so that he humbled himself to become a man. And not only that, but because he willingly chose the cross. Chose to be obedient to God even to the point of the cross. The cross. Because of that much obedience, God rewarded him by raising him from the dead and exalted him all the way up to the heavenly places. Amen? It seems like this is among the same line that the author of Hebrews is telling us here. Jesus was heard and was saved from the death through his resurrection because of his reverence and godly fear. Amen? Though he was, it's a lot, but it's good. Let's, uh, let's continue. This is going to get even better now. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he has suffered. Now, this might not be the best Greek part. The first part, though he was a son, this might not be the best of what the Greek is trying to tell us. The Greek goes like this. Son, though he was. Look at this. Son, though he was, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. The word son in Greek it doesn't have a definition article. It's not that son. It's just nothing before. It's blank. Son, though he was. And we've seen the exact same description, the exact same way in, in chapter 1 verse 2. When the author of Hebrews said, God in times past has spoken to our forefathers uh, by the prophets, has in these last days spoke to us through son. Same thing. No definition article, no uh, a or an or thou, nothing like that. Just the word son. Because the emphasis here is on the quality. Who is that son? He is the one who has the very nature of the father. And the fact that it doesn't have a or an or thou or any preposition before it emphasizes that. Son though he was. Amen? Amen? Now the author of Hebrews doesn't say because. Does he say because he was a son he learned obedience? Or says although he was a son he learned obedience? Although or because? Although. Although. Does it make a difference if he said although or if he said because? It makes a big difference. Look at this. This is how William Lane put it. It's so good. I'm just going to read it. When he says although, not because, it tells us this. The decision to relate the, the part, although he was the son, to the, to the rest of that verse, which is he learned obedience from what he suffered, indicates that the discussion, look at this, indicates that the discussion of the obedience of Christ is qualified by the affirmation that Jesus is inherently and intrinsically the Son of God, whose essential sonship is a fact wholly apart from the experience of suffering. You get that? You get that? Although he was a son, it's not, the author of Hebrews is not saying because he was a son. If the author of Hebrews said, despite. exactly, despite the fact that he's the son, he learned suffering, he learned obedience. If the author of Hebrews would have said, because he is the son, he learned obedience, what will come to your mind and my mind is this. Jesus learned obedience by trials and errors. He disobeyed, and because he disobeyed and found that disobedience is bad, eventually he learned to obey God, right? This is how you and I will learn obedience because we are sons, right? 
But this is not the case with Christ. Jesus did not learn obedience through trials and errors or through failing many times in disobedience and then eventually become obedient. No, nothing like that. Jesus learned obedience in spite of the fact that he is already the son of God. And the fact that he learned obedience has nothing to do with the fact that he is inherently the divine son of the living God. Amen? You guys are with me? All right. Now, how did Jesus learn that obedience? How did Jesus learn that obedience? Let's look deeper. It says here, although he was the son, he learned obedience by that which he has suffered. I did not notice this before, but it's so good. William Lane again put this and said that the word suffering in the book of Hebrews is almost exclusively a reference to the suffering of the cross. I did not notice that before, but it's so good. Every time the author of Hebrews say that Jesus suffered for the most part, he's exclusively talking about the cross. Chapter 2, verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was amid a little bit lower than the angels. Why? For the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. Verse, chapter 2, verse 10. For it was fitting for him, from whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. What suffering? Obviously, Jesus became our Savior when he died on the cross, right? Chapter 9, verse 26. Jesus then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world to sacrifice, to atone for our sins. But now, once at the end of the age, he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. How? By his suffering. And because his, perfect, his sacrifice is perfect, he, need, he did not need to suffer many times. You guys are with me? He suffered once, and because his sacrifice was complete, he didn't need to suffer anymore. Chapter 13, verse 12. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood. What happened to him? He suffered outside the gate. He suffered on Mount Calvary. Amen? So every time that the author of Hebrews, for the most part, say the word suffer, he's exclusively referencing the cross. Now, the author of Hebrews is saying that although Jesus is the divine son of the living God, he learned obedience through the suffering of the cross. When he went to the cross, he learned obedience to God the Father. So what does it mean? Again, it doesn't mean that Jesus learned from trial and error. This is how I look at it. If God is calling you to the mission field, right? And you say, God, I love you, and I will go anywhere you send me. Now, your heart is in the right place, right? You really love God. You really want to do whatever He wants. You'll go anywhere He sends you. But when you actually do the practicality of going overseas, when you actually go to China or India, and you have to learn a different culture and hang out with different people and eat different food and live a different life and suffer in different ways, through the practicality of going overseas, you're learning in a practical way obedience to God. You guys are with me? It is not that you were not willing to be obedient to begin with. You're obviously willing to be obedient, but when you go through the practicality of the experience, that's when you learn in a practical way what obedience to God entails. You guys are with me? This is precisely how Jesus learned obedience to the Father. Even from the beginning, he loved God so, he loved the Father so much. Even when he was the divine son of the living God, he was just God. I'll do whatever you want. I love you. I'll do anything that you would like for me to do. God said, okay, good. Let's save the human race. Jesus said, I'll do it. But then when he actually ended up coming down, when he actually went to the cross, when he endured or the suffering that the cross has brought upon Jesus, that's when Jesus practically experienced obedience and exhibited obedience to God through the suffering of the cross. You guys are with me? Amen. Although he was the son, he learned obedience by that which he suffered. And again, link. see how again, if you go back to uh, Philippians 2, Paul linked obedience to the cross. Again, you see the link over there in verses 6 to 8. Talk about Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it a robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, 
taking the form of a bondservant and becoming in the likeness of man and being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself and became what? Obedient. You see how just like the author of Hebrews linked obedience to the cross, right? Also Paul links obedience to the cross. Amen? Jesus, although he is the divine son of the living God, he exhibited and manifested and learned obedience by the suffering of the cross. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all those who obey him. Amen? Now, it says here that he having been perfected, what does it say? What does it mean that Jesus had been perfected? That means he was not perfect before and now he became perfect? No. The author of Hebrews said something like this before in chapter 2 verse 10. It says this, For it was fitting for him, that's the Father, for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. It is the exact same idea here. The idea is... Jesus could not, in, in chapter 2 verse 10, Jesus could not have become the captain of our salvation if he did not suffer as our substitute in the cross. You guys are with me? And in spite of the fact that Jesus is as divine as the Father is, when it comes to him being our Savior, he must have gone to the cross to become the captain of our salvation. And it is the suffering of the cross that made him a complete and perfect Savior for us. If it wasn't for that, he still could have not been the captain of our salvation. You guys are with me? And it's the exact same idea that the author of Hebrews is saying here. It's when Jesus was obedient to the Father even to endure the suffering of the cross. He has been perfected as our Savior through that. It doesn't matter how divine Jesus is. He must have gone to the cross to become our Savior. Amen? This blows your mind away. Can you think about that? Jesus is as divine as the Father is, yet he could have never become our Savior if he, could not, if he would have not gone to the cross. Isn't that just crazy? And that's what it says here in verse 9. Having been perfected by going through the suffering of the cross to be Savior for us, what it says after that? He became the author of eternal salvation. Let me ask you a question. If Jesus would have not gone through the cross, do you think he could have ever become the author of eternal salvation? Yeah. No. Jesus is the author of eternal salvation only because he was obedient to the cross and he went through the suffering of the cross. Because he died for us on the cross, because of that, as a result of that, he can be the author of eternal salvation. Amen? So when you go out, this is just mind-blowing. When people say that there are too many ways to God, Jesus himself could have not been Savior if it wasn't for the cross. Amen? That tells you that there's only one way to God. It has to be through the cross. Even Jesus could not be our Savior if it wasn't for the cross. Amen? There's only one way. And that's through the cross, what Jesus has done for us. He became the author of uh, eternal salvation. In the, old, in the book of Hebrews, we see, we read about eternal judgment in chapter 6, verse 2. We read about eternal redemption. I'm just going to go over these. Eternal redemption, chapter 9, verse 12. We read about um, eternal covenant in chapter 9, verse 15. And we read about eternal... Um, okay, let's go back for chapter 9, verse 15. He's... Uh, Eternal inheritance in chapter 9, verse 15. And eternal covenant in chapter 13, verse 12. Now let this, let this word just blow your mind away. Jesus has become the author of eternal salvation to who? To the whole world? Okay, who are these many? Right, it's many. But how this, the, exactly. The author of Hebrews described them as those who obey him, right? Remember, the author of Hebrews just spoke about Christ's own obedience. And he linked the obedience, the radical obedience of Christ to the Father to the cross. You guys are with me? 
What the author of Hebrews is saying is this. Jesus' obedience to the Father was so radical that he's willing to lay it all down for the sake of glorifying the Father. Amen? And he's willing to be the author of eternal salvation to only those who will obey him in such a radical manner as he himself has radically obeyed the Father. You guys are with me? This is crazy. This is crazy. I mean, Jesus himself said, before you follow me, count the cost. Count the cost. If you're not willing to be radically obedient to me, guess what? Go find yourself a different master. Amen? Jesus is not looking for half-hearted followers. He's not looking for 50% of your heart. He's not looking for you to obey him sometimes. If you're not willing to radically obey him in the same manner, he radically obeyed the Father, even to the point of death, the death of the cross. Didn't he himself say, if you're not willing to carry your cross and follow me every single day, don't be my disciple, amen? It's the exact same radical obedience that he showed to the Father when Jesus himself carried the cross and all the way to Mount Calvary and was nailed on it. This is how much he obeyed God, right? And he's telling you and me, if you're not willing to obey me to the exact same extent, I cannot be the author of eternal salvation for you. Crazy. To those who obey him. And then he says that Jesus called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now verse 10, the author of Hebrews going back to Psalm 110 verse 4. And the point, the idea here, he's reaffirming that Jesus was a, the appointment of Jesus as our high priest, which he just mentioned. And he also, by the allusion, uh, but the allusion also serves to, um, to connect Jesus' priesthood with his saving work. Jesus is priest. We'll talk about that when we get to it in chapter 7. Uh, um, Melchizedek was um, the king of Jerusalem. That, so we read about him, I think, in, in Genesis. Um, can't remember chapter... Uh, can't remember. It's probably chapter 20 or 19 or... Not 19. Probably around chapter 20 uh, or 18 or something to that effect. Um, after Abraham... Abraham and Lot spread, split, correct? Lot went to uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham went to a different place. And then uh, the five kings came, and they conquered Sodom and Gomorrah. And when Abraham said so that his uh, nephew, Lot, was captured, he took 1,300 of his uh, uh, slaves, and he went there, and he delivered Lot. And he restored Lot and all his possessions from uh, the, the, the five kings. And on the way back, we read about this Melchizedek just coming out of nowhere. And he is the king of Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem that we know as of today. He was also a priest. And he came to Abraham and, um, and Abraham offered him a tithe of everything that he has gotten out of that war. And Melchizedek blessed Abraham. So in a way, Melchizedek showed uh, superiority over Abraham because he blessed him. And the Bible says that the oldest, the greater, blessed the, the, the smaller one, right? When somebody is in a higher place, always blesses those who are under him. And Abraham gave him tithe of everything that he has. Again, it shows that Abraham revered Melchizedek as a priest of God. We'll talk about that and how is he... I mean, if you have time, we'll talk, but it has been an hour already. So um, we'll talk about that more in details. How, why is Jesus a high priest on the order of Melchizedek? And how is that superior and better than Aaron when we get to chapter 7? But the idea here is uh, the priesthood of Melchizedek is far more superior than the priesthood of Aaron. And Jesus is a priest on the order of Melchizedek, which is a superior priesthood than that of Aaron. We'll discuss that in details um, in the next few weeks. Amen? You guys are with me so far? All right.